Hi, I'm Dora from Dora Nicolau and my drink of choice is a chai. I'm Gemma from Contently Driven and my drink of choice is red wine. And I'm Michaela from Inspired Office and my drink of choice is a sparkling white wine. Work-life wine time supports the responsible consumption of alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Work-Wife Wine Time podcast the podcast for Australian women in business who are looking for connection and the support of other women who are sharing the same business journey. It's Makala with you today, and I'm really excited to be introducing to you my very special guest, author, educator, and public speaker, Amy Edelstein. Thank you for joining us today, Amy. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this. Fantastic. Now, Amy, I have you here today specifically to talk about your latest number one Amazon best-selling book, Adventure in Zanskar. Do I say that right? Yes, it that's exactly Zanskar. how you pronounce it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, which is a book I read and loved, and I promise we will get to that shortly. However, first, as a bit of background, I'd love it if you could tell us a bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Absolutely. So I love talking to women who support other women. That's always been a theme of mine and the sense of wanting to feel no limitation as a woman, but in when you're in the world, there's, there are a lot of uphills that you have to climb. And of course, men have their own challenges, but it's very different. So I really was happy to connect with you and to hear more about your community. I currently live in one of the 10 largest uh, cities in America, in Philadelphia, which is on the East Coast of America. And I run a large nonprofit that I founded called Inner Strength Education. So we bring a unique blend of mindfulness, systems thinking, compassion building, and understanding of the evolution of the body and culture to adolescents. So we work with 13 to 17 year olds, 18 year olds. Since I founded the program in 2014, we've worked with more than 17,000 teens and we work with them once a week for three months. So it's a fairly intensive program as part of their school curriculum. So I grew this nonprofit, speaking of business from a wish and a prayer and scotch tape and paper clips, basically. <laughs> and we all start. Yeah. And we're now over a million dollar budget. Wow. And we have funding from the state, funding from the school district, as well as private donations and grants. So it's been it's been a lot of work. And I think all your entrepreneurial women know that everyone loves the stories of success. And you can say, wow, I got my first six figures. I remember when I got my first $1,000 grant and it was just like, that's so amazing. I'm not putting together $10 grants to form $1,000. You know, all my staff now have full benefits and, you know, they're, they're on salary, I have some contract teachers as well, but it's a real business with a solid foundation that is doing 
uh, the kind of work I wished I had had when I was a teenager, which is when I started experimenting with mindfulness back in 1978. So can you tell us a little bit more about the program? Because I I have two teenagers, so I'm really interested to hear in what it is you're actually doing with these teens. Because by the sounds of it, you've had amazing results. And I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's an occupational therapist, and I mentioned your name, and she knew your name, and I was like, "Oh wow, this is fantastic!" Because she'd read your other book, The Conscious Classroom. That's fabulous. Um- I do have a mobile app, which is called Inner Strength Vibe, V-I-B-E, and it's absolutely free. There's no paywall. It's designed for teenagers and to both practice mindfulness and also to it follows along the curriculum that we teach. There are four basic components. So adolescence is a time of discovery. It's a time when teens are thinking about who they are, what their purpose in the world is, they're trying to find their way. They're trying to be adults. They're not yet adults at that developmental stage, but they're, they're different. It's a different phase. It's a different phase of brain development than a childhood phase. So the adolescent period of brain development is when teens are specializing, they're discovering their unique passions. And that's what we see in them, you know, their hairstyle, their playlist, their clothes, their different groups of friends, you know, when they're, when they're eight, anyone can come to their birthday party. You know, it's all the kids in the class, everyone's together and everyone has cake and ice cream. There isn't much specialization. And by adolescence, that's when they're really forming their own sense of selfhood. So it's a really good time to teach teens about our program works with Uh, evolutionary brain development. So they learn 300 million years of brain development, how our brain works, the different parts of the brain, which formed earlier, showed up earlier in species, which showed up later. And the fact that we have habits that are deeply encoded in us. And so we do it through, of course, imagination and visualization so they can understand the parts of the brain and how the triggers of the brain are manifesting now. So they may have over emotional responses, they may have fear responses, then we teach them where that comes from. And we teach them what's happening in the adolescent period of brain development, which is very unique. And why habit forming is so important during the teenage years, why peer pressure is a real thing. You can't just say, I'm not gonna be influenced by my peers because the teen brain is structured to register input from their peers more strongly than input from adults or children. And, you know, my evolutionary theory around it is, you know, back in early human culture, in the early days, our parents' generation wasn't going to last much longer. You know, life expectancy was 40 to 60, maybe a little younger. So by the time you're a teen, you need to one, take risks and learn how to hunt and fend for yourself because the older ones who know how to do it aren't going to be there that much longer. And you need to bond and create a social group because you can't survive on your own. So risky behavior is coded into the adolescent brain. The dopamine levels drop. So teens need to generate excitement to feel like life is okay. The the limbic system registers input from 
their same age group very strongly. So when they're together, they're bonding, they're norming together. So we teach teens about this and, and they go, oh, it's not because I'm stupid. It's not because I was just being rebellious. It's not because I fighting with my mother. It was just, I told her I would do one thing. And when I went to that party and I was with all my friends, they said, let's drive home and I want to play you my new song. And I promised her I would take an Uber. I promised her I wouldn't drive home late with my friends, but it seemed like a good idea. We were all together. And then I got home and I saw her face and I remembered. <laughs> wow, that, that's amazing. My mind's a little bit blown at the moment. Just allowing these teens the opportunity to have this knowledge about what they're doing and why they're doing. Like I, I can just see all of these potential, you know, all these potentialities for negative self-talk about the things they do as teenagers to not eventuate and not grow like it has with the rest of us that haven't had access to this sort of information. Exactly, because telling teens not to do something is not that helpful, but teaching no. them perspective so they can find their way and they understand themselves and you're, you're empowering them, you're leaving them on their own, you're teaching them how to think and yeah. you're making sense of the world because the world's such a confusing place when you're an adolescent. Oh, absolutely. It's confusing for us too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I was just thinking, you know, in the work that I'm doing at the moment as a, um, a productivity life coach, it's like I explain to my clients who are, adults and generally women over the age of 40 about how the brain works and you know how the brain developed and you know they the insight that I see my clients get about that and oh so that's why I do that it's not because I'm lazy like you're saying it's like wow imagine having teens knowing this back in adolescence right through their lives that's amazing yeah um just briefly, the other components that we include in this that are unique is we look at how culture has shifted. Mm -hmm. So we take them on a guided visualization back any village in the world a thousand years ago, what life was like. You wore the same shoes, you wore the same clothes, you did your hair the same way, you ate the same things, you knew exactly what you were going to do when you grew up everybody knew you if you had a problem you knew who to talk to a lot of social support but not a lot of opportunity for individuation mm -hmm. and flash forward to the postmodern period we have so much choice one it's overwhelming you know which tennis shoes do you want to wear with which outfit what outfit yeah. do you want how do you want to do your hair today what playlist do you want to listen to on the way to work on the way to school. And if you're gonna have breakfast, do you want breakfast burritos? Do you want cold cereal? If you want cold cereal, which of the hundred boxes do you want? Or do you want, you know, Pop-Tarts? Or do you want waffles? Or do you want, you know, there, there's this constant endless choice. Um, kids all complain about having too much schoolwork. So back in a thousand years ago, if you were a girl, you definitely wouldn't be educated. And if you were a boy, only if you were in upper, in nobility or or in some kind of position as a priest or you know a, a spiritual leader of the village so they start to intuitively experientially feel that 
life used to be simpler. They didn't have to worry. They didn't have to make all these decisions, but they couldn't express their uniqueness. Now they have so many choices and decisions to make, which is overwhelming. They feel exhausted. They feel confused. They feel self-doubt. But they have the opportunity to decide what do they do they want to go to college? What do they want to be? What do they, you know, girls have opportunity that they didn't before. You're not, you're not just um, in a role that you have to fulfill. So again, they start to understand that there's an upside and a downside to cultural change, and they have a lot more freedom and the opportunity for self-agency, but they don't have the same social support. And so they're confused. And most of them say, you know, they go to Google for advice when they're yeah. confused. Then they go and ask a parent or a friend, but oftentimes they, they, they search first. And we know that it's not the most reliable no. advice. <laughs> not the most helpful advice at the best of times. Yeah. So you do that coupled with compassion building and compassion building meditations coupled with mindful awareness and cultivating calm and focus and you've got a package that you know if teens like to meditate great if they don't like to meditate they can think about the science if they don't like the science they can think about social structure so there's usually a way in for almost any type of learner in the class wow that's that's fantastic that's really great and can you tell me about like a bit more about the school district that you've been working in. I know you mentioned this to me when we spoke before about the challenges that sure. your program is helping the teens in dealing with. It's not something that we really come across in Australia, but I just think, you know, yeah. I'd love it if you could tell us a bit more about sure. that. Sure. So Philadelphia is about a million and a half people. There are 120,000 students in the school district. There are 47 high schools. Uh, we're in 10, I think this year, we've been in 19 different high schools across the city. We're usually in the same. And some of those schools are very high achieving academic schools where students compete to go to the best liberal arts colleges. And still, even among those high achievers across our student body, between 70 and 80% of the students come from families of poverty. And that's defined, it's different in every city and in our city, that's defined as $24,000 US per year for a family of four. Wow. And this is America, things cost. So we're yeah. dealing with deep, systemic intergenerational poverty and all of the problems, the, the level of existential insecurity. Um, there's a high immigrant population and a lot of concern, you know, over um, the past administration. Our country was, was not welcoming at all to immigrants. So it made life very difficult. And we have, this city has the unfortunate um, status of being the second largest, the second per, in the second most gun violence per capita of all the large US cities, second only to Chicago. Wow. I have schools where 
they've lost two kids in the last six weeks. I have, you know, an assistant principal calls me and just says, can you work with our teachers? They are devastated. You know, we lost a senior who was shot intentionally walking home from school, 10 minutes from school, the teachers went out and cared for him until the ambulance came, but he didn't, he didn't survive. This is a level of poverty, uh, systemic racism, it's very high African-American population as, as well as other immigrants um, and a very high level of poverty and violence um, and, and police inequity and brutality. So, you know, we just have a perfect storm here. So it's been a really rough couple of years. So a lot of, I mean, Australians may have seen our city on the news because some of the more uh, challenging events that have happened in American culture over the last few years, riots and police crackdowns. Our, our city, there was a big expose on what happened uh, in the New York Times that kind of went around the world. So the, these, you know, some of my students are afraid to go out. They say they just take the bus home. They go home, they don't go out because they're afraid of uh, you know, getting shot accidentally playing. Uh, I can't tell you how heartbreaking it is. You know, and I formed this program to bring a real level of uh, excitement and curiosity and discovery and to really feed the creative juices of teens, you know, because that's the time when you can ask unanswerable questions. What's the difference between mind, thought, and awareness? And they'll talk to you about it. And it's great, but the last two years, it's very hard to cut through just this level of um, existential threat. Uh, so I'm, I've really seen a change in my students over the last two and a half years. That's brilliant. Thank you for sharing that with us, yeah. Amy. I just, I really wanted people to understand that, you know, it's not, you're not just running this program in wonderful, perfect circumstances that it, you know, it really is making a difference in a place, particularly in the world where, you know, you are having a lot of trials and difficulties and just, I don't know, all sorts of social stuff has been bubbling up around the world in the last yeah. few years and you guys seem to really be not quite at the epicenter but really feeling all of it yeah yeah there's we have as a global community we have so much work to do mm, and absolutely. like you said that you know bringing the values of contemplative practice to students when they're shaping the values of their life can can make a difference. You know, part, we're, we're not, in our postmodern materially oriented world, we don't spend enough time really thinking about purpose and why are we here as a human family? What are we supposed to be doing with our lives? What is, what is like real success mean? Not just enough money or a nice car or a good family, but, but what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean? What do we want to do with this 
you know, this life we have and what would, that's what I love about the East and my time there when I was young, it, that influenced me so much was people taught, you know, and it, of course it's um, become very materialistic in India as well, strong middle class that's unfortunately followed a lot of the bad habits from America and other countries. But when I was there in my formative years, in my early 20s, people were talking about the ultimate purpose of human life. What gives life meaning? Why are we here? What can you aspire to become? And then holding out examples of saints and sages and great, you know, social activists. And when you measure yourself against, you know, Mahatma Gandhi or Nelson Mandela, you're like, okay, I got a, I got a ways to go. What do I need to do to lean into this? I mean, I thought I was pretty good, but no, I'm not actually, there's a lot more to go when you, I always loved being around cultural role models and seeing them up close and, you know, and really seeing, yes, they're really human beings and they're extraordinary. So how can I become more extraordinary? What, what do I need to contemplate? What do I need to think about? What questions do I need to answer? And that uh, is really what I, I, that's really what got me where I am now and, and what I love to share with other people. That's brilliant. And I think that's an excellent segue into, the, into your book. Mm. So your book, Adventure in Zanskar. Now, as I mentioned, I absolutely loved it. And travel memoirs are hands down my favourite books of all time. And as I said to you earlier, throw in a good dash of Buddhism mm. and I'm just in heaven. So can you just tell us, just tell us a little bit briefly what your book is about? So in 1983, I went to India and I spent the better part of four years there. I went back and forth a few times, but I spent the better part of four years, 12 months I was walking in different parts of the Himalayan mountains. And the rest of the time I was studying different philosophies and really immersing myself in the culture. So Adventure in Zanskar is a two month trip a trek that I made on my own at 21 years old in the northernmost uh, part of India. It's the little finger that sticks up. Of, when you look at India on the map, there's a little finger that sticks up. And Zanskar is tucked right in that finger. Geographically, it's part of the Tibetan Plateau. Um, it's a valley. It's a narrow valley that was Buddhist before Tibet. It's been Buddhist for oh. almost two centuries. And, um, you know, they say that the Buddha traveled all over, that he went way north. He may have gone as far as Turkey, went down to Sri Lanka, who knows what's true, but it's a very old Buddhist valley that eventually they also practiced the Bon religion. And then when Buddhism went to Tibet, Tibetans then came back over into Zanskar and it became what they practice now is a form of Tibetan Buddhism. The Zanskaris look very similar to Tibetans, but their language is slightly different than Tibet. And so I walked, I had, it was before GPS, before cell phones, before internet, before there were roads in the region, before there was electricity in the region. 
I had this like massive Indian army map that was probably like a meter wide that, you know, I would fold up and unfold and, um, you know, and there were little dots for footpaths and little carrots for mountain passes and everything was pretty rough and ready. You know, you weren't really sure if, if that was really a, a real path or not. But I went and I walked 500 kilometers up and down, you know, high mountain peaks over glaciers. I slept with families in little villages of like 15 houses. I slept in caves. I slept outside. And I had the most, I was there because I had been living in, uh, in Dharamsala where the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan people have their government in exile. And I had studied some Tibetan Buddhism in Dharamsala and in Nepal. And I really wanted to go where it wasn't a refugee culture. They were just had been living a Buddhist culture since forever. It was just their way of life. And what I found was so moving and it stayed with me for, so, you know, 40 years later, I finally wrote a book about it. That's how important it was I just the people were so happy and so equanimous and by equanimous they were very even with good fortune and bad fortune but they're not like they're not like stone buddhas they're like very boisterous and rowdy and fun loving and they're laughing and um, teasing each other good-naturedly and they like to sing and they like to dance and they were really full of life and full, like so at one with the Buddhist teachings that it wasn't really something they thought about applying and doing. It was the way they lived their life. And I learned so much from being there. And you mentioned that, you know, this journey took place 40 years ago. How is it that you came to write your book now, so many years later? I had, I had kept journals while I was there. I kept journals uh, ever since I was eight. So I had, I used to write and I had, I still write, but I used to have journals from my entire life. And then it, at a certain point in my life, I got rid of everything. You know, it's one of those things you regret later, but at the time you just feel like I'm just, I'll let everything go. But I always kept these two Indian copy books that I wrote in really tiny handwriting when I was in Zanskar because they were, I just knew they were important. And so I had the notes of the journey. And during the pandemic, I was really busy. We doubled the number of classrooms because we were teaching virtually. We didn't have to travel. Uh, the teachers were desperate for some relief because it was so hard for them to switch from in-person to virtual. So we could support them and the kids were having a hard time adjusting to virtual school. So we could give them some emotional and mental stability. And when I'm busy writing something I love makes me relax. So I used to write in just like little 15 minute increments. <laughs> and I just felt that one, the world needed a lot of inspiration. They needed some fun. They needed a sense that life was good that there are examples of places that are harmonious and people who are living a life that feels really rich. You know, during the pandemic, people were so depressed and they were having such a hard time and they were feeling so deprived. And here was a people that lived a very simple 
so, so, you know, mostly subsistence life, but they were so rich. They really lacked for nothing. And so that the two things coupled, you know, they came together that my relaxation was writing and I felt that it was just time to, to share a very happy story. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. I think the timing was really fantastic. Um, and I found, like, I, I mean, I have read the book just recently, just in the last couple of weeks. And even now, like, I, I'm not sure what it's like where you are, but where I am, as far as COVID goes, all the, you know, border restrictions have eased and we pretty much go about our daily life unless someone in our family has COVID, then we have to isolate. But life is pretty much back to normal. But even so, reading your book, every evening when I've sat down to do it, it's been such a beautiful escape. It's, you know, um, just the simplicity that you talk about of these places and life, it's almost like I'd sit in my lounge room, you know, normal 21st century lounge room, and I just want to be back there. I'd look at the things around me and just think, oh, I wish I didn't have all of this. And it's something, it's similar to, I guess, experiences that we've had. Um, I've done a little bit of travelling with my kids and when we've gone to places like um, Fiji, which is some a group of islands near Australia, and we've stayed in places that there's certainly nothing like, you know, you experience, but compared to where we live now, it's a lot simpler, a lot simpler. And we've always found as a family that when we leave those places and come home, you just want to throw everything out. Like you just want to remove everything. You want to throw your phone into the ocean, get rid of the television, you know, just totally pare back and just make life simpler. Yeah. And I guess that's what you really found because um, I was reading, I noticed in the end of the book, like the whole way through your book, it's like just a breath of fresh air. It's, you know, it's so nice hearing about all the different things and the simplicity and the happiness and the joy that people found in having such simple lives. And then at the end of the book where you talked about coming, I can't remember exactly the location, I'm not good with location names, but coming back into civilization. And you were talking about the advertising that you were seeing and all of that sort of stuff. Can you tell us a bit more about how you found that, leaving this, I want to say, pure, simple existence and coming back into life as it was 40 years ago, which, you know, is very right. different from what it is now. Like now yeah. it just kind of, I mean, I, I was thinking if you came out of that into life as it was now, you may very well have gone mad because <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. But, yeah, can you tell us a bit more about the experience that you had when you were re-entering, for want of yeah. a better term, re-entering civilization? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm going to start back a little bit because what I learned walking, you know, when you're walking, 
10 hours a day. And sometimes I'd walk at night under the moon. Sometimes the stars were so bright. I actually walked under starlight. And you, you basically have to learn how to deal with your mind. And that's where, you know, you see that you can be in a beautiful place and you can be filled with angst you know, cause your minds, you're just having one of those days yep. and, you know, you can be at the bottom of a mountain and feel completely discouraged. And it takes you forever to get up and over the pass, or you can be halfway up and be filled with inspiration and love and, you know, spiritual insight and meditative bliss. And it feels like it takes you no time. And then you start to realize that a lot has to do with our relationship to thought more than whatever's happening outside. And, and as I watch the Zanskaris and some of the different stories that I tell where, for example, there's one story where I was walking with three, two horsemen with three horses and one of the horsemen, his horse spooked and jumped off the cliff and died. Now for Zanskaris, a horse is very expensive. It's an important part of their income. And he was completely unflappable. He was, he just accepted it. That's what happened. Uh, I was very worried that it was because uh, the horse was carrying my pack for, um, you know, we met up and they offered and I thought maybe my smell was very foreign or it had foreign materials. Maybe it spooked the horse, but the, the horseman just felt like that's what happened. So, we, they, he just went on. And I thought, you know, when I lose something, I get so angry with myself or, you know, if you see, uh, you know, for people who live in traffic, I don't know what it's like there, but here, you know, people get so angry if somebody cuts in front of you and, you know, Shay, you know, makes it take like 15 seconds longer for you to get to the next red light, you know, people really start cursing each other because they've lost something or they've been slighted. And you, what I saw in Zanskar was people really living in a way that they took full responsibility for their karma, for the situation. They didn't blame people. They didn't express um, kind of grievances and grudges. There's a, there's a phrase where they say, we all have to get along with each other. And, you know, what that means is the villages are so small, the, the living is so rough, they have to depend on each other. So they can't afford to fight about things that aren't important. So I learned all of that, you know, and I saw my own grasping mind and my own insecure mind. And I saw my self-doubt and I saw, I saw all kinds of things I saw yeah, I, I, which I describe a lot in the book of just really understanding the nature of the mind. So when I came out of the valley, I was, it was very bittersweet because part of me wanted to stay, but I also knew if I really wanted to stay, I could. Nobody was stopping me. Nobody was waiting for me. I didn't have children to go to. I was only 21. I didn't have um, anything I objectively had to do. So I felt like this was the moment to come to end this chapter. And I'd had these very 
powerful experiences in meditation and in the monasteries and with different teachers. So part of me felt like this is just, I'm a Western woman, I'm American. This is, the, it's right for me to end this phase. And so I had to practice what I saw the Zanskaris living, which was equanimity. You see what you don't want. You see your criticism of it. You see your judgment of it. But how stable are you in understanding interconnectedness and understanding the nature of change and understanding what awareness is prior to every object that you're aware of? How stable are you in your meditative understanding? And so when I came out, I was, you know, I was very sensitive, you know, it's sort of like new skin when you take a Band-Aid off, you know, it's very fragile. So you feel everything. But I also knew that part of the test was to see how much had I really learned and how deeply had I taken in what I observed. So that was a lot of what I describe at the very end. Wouldn't I have a few times? Could you mention along the journey that you came across other people that were doing it? Um, one in particular, I think, that was doing it on horseback. What motivated you to do the entire walk on foot? I always, at that time, I really liked traveling alone mm -hmm. because I felt I really wanted to learn the language and spend as much time as I could with the people who lived there. And also when you're a woman alone, you can spend a lot of time with the women. Whereas if you're traveling with them, at least in those years, if you're traveling with a male partner, it's a little harder. And what I saw with couples or groups of people, they tended to talk to each other because they shared a language. And I thought, well, if you're going to go with like an Italian, a Frenchman and a Swiss person, you might as well be in Europe. Well, I do it in Zanskar. So, so that was part of it. And I was young and I really wanted to stay in Asia as long as possible. So, and it wasn't very common to hire guides with horses. And it wasn't like now you can look up at the internet and book your tour in advance and it was much more rough and ready. And the people who did do that were just, they were just in a different league financially than I was at the time. And they traveled in a different way. So it didn't really cross my mind to go by horseback. Um, you know, I, I was, I guess, I was just on the, the traveler circuit of the 1983. Um, I, you know, I think even if I knew it had been a possibility, I wouldn't have considered it partly because I wanted to walk and I wanted to, I was, I wanted to do it on my own. I wanted to feel like I was carrying my own weight and to really test myself and see what I was capable of. Um, if I would go now at 40 years later, I would, I would, not be able to do the same trip I did then. It takes a certain kind of youthful naivete <laughs> <laughs> to do that. So what, what do you think are the biggest ways in which your experience um, in the Zanskar Valley changed you? 
the biggest thing hands down is it gave me faith in humanity mm -hmm. i really because i had visited different communities and different monasteries i lived in israel on a kibbutz for a while um i had traveled around the states and i really never found a whole environment where i felt that people were deeply purposeful and happy because of it. There was always so much conflict and angst. And I really wanted, that's what I really longed for, but I didn't know if it existed. You know, and a lot of the experiments from the 60s, I was too young for that. You know, what I, by the time I was of age, they had all kind of fallen apart. So I wasn't sure that there was a place that, that I could see people really living together in a way that felt pretty extraordinary. And that's what I saw because of the Buddhist values, because they had lived in this harmonious way, because they didn't have wars, because they weren't, they didn't have a money economy. They all took care of each other. And they all sent one or two children to a monastery or a nunnery and the children would come back during harvest and teach the teachings to the rest of the family. And there was this sense that people cared about enlightenment. They cared about the highest human potential. They cared about karma, the, the effects of their actions down, you know, the way they see it is down through lifetimes so that you don't even have to see it that way, but they're very sensitive to creating good karma, not creating bad karma, because it matters if you want to awaken, if you want to be a Buddha, and they believe that everybody has Buddha nature, if you apply yourself. And I had never been somewhere that people, this was their currency. I grew up in America, and um, religion is very separate, and religious communities are generally mixed you know it's not like those communities it's not like a whole city or a whole valley would be sharing values and really living them and so it gave me just tremendous faith that human beings can get it together mm. we can really do something extraordinary and that's um of everything you know of course it was extraordinarily beautiful and I try to describe the mountains and um, there were so many aspects but but the fact that people were deeply happy not because of something external but because of where their values were that gave me faith that's beautiful where can our listeners connect with you Amy and how can they get their hands on a copy of your book because I highly recommend that everyone buy a copy of your book because it's just a beautiful story. Thank you. Um, so you can get it on Amazon and it, there's a Kindle version if you're a Kindle reader and you want it instantaneously. Um, but there's paperback and a hardback and, a, and, and I don't know if bookstores in Australia carry it. Um, if you're in the States, bookstores carry it. You can find out more about my work at amyedelstein.com or the nonprofit at innerstrengtheducation.org. 
And if you are a teacher or educator of some type or therapist and work with adolescents, there are a lot of free materials on inner strength education, so resources. Uh, so do feel free to visit. Um, I do a teacher training. I had somebody fly all the way from New Zealand to take the inner strength teacher training to learn how to teach this in schools. Uh, she works um, with different uh, brain balancing technologies and, and other types. So she now is doing this also. And I don't think she runs big programs, but she works, takes the tools and works with adolescents. Um, so there are different opportunities to study. And again, people can access me through the contact form. The contact form from either website I will get. Um, Fantastic. And I'll put all those details in the show notes so people have access to that. And Amy, do you have any final thoughts or takeaways that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think the given everything we've spoken about, I think everyone should should feel inspired by what's possible and resist the temptation to feel like you need to do anything special to justify that inspiration. So you don't have to go to Zanskar, you don't have to do social activist work or run a nonprofit. Um, you just need to, you know, if everyone can value that part of themselves that cares about life, that, that feels inspired by what's possible, that feels love and connection. If, you, if everyone can value that just a little bit more and notice those things that you already do in your life that feed that, that'll bring those things to the forefront. And you may start doing them more, or maybe your life doesn't allow you to do those things more, but when you're experiencing that sense of joy when you're walking by the beach, because there's some beautiful beaches in Australia, or you're with your children, or your, your pet, or you just see the sun just in a particular way, and you feel that sense of uplift, just notice it, allow yourself to drink it in, because that's what nourishes us and lets um, all of that good grow. That is just beautiful. I think I think we'll leave it there, Amy. Thank you so much for your time today and speaking with us. And I really hope everything with your book goes well. And I did want to mention too that you do have, I think, five other books. Six. Six other books yeah. that you have published as well. That I'll, There's a few of them that I've already added to my wish list. So I'll be making my way through some of them. Um, but, yeah, so I really encourage our listeners to check Amy out on her website um, and have a look at what she has to offer. And she's also got some really good um, videos that I found interesting, um, in particular where she talks to other people about the work that she does. So I highly recommend that everyone jumps on and has a look at that. So thank you again, Amy. Thank you so much. It was delightful. Uh, I really appreciate it. 
Thanks for tuning into our podcast. If you enjoyed it, hit subscribe. If you'd like to learn more, then check out our website, www.workwifewinetime.com.au. While you're there, jump on our mailing list to receive special updates and offers from our guests. Until next time, take care and drink responsibly.